Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about technology integration, instructional design, and the learning sciences. This week, we'll be talking about misconceptions in learning, especially one of the biggest misconceptions out there, which is learning styles. We'll also address other misconceptions as well. But before we do that, I'd like to introduce my two guests, Marina, Angela, welcome. And please tell us a bit about ourselves. So my name is Marina. I'm currently teaching in fourth grade. This is my third year of teaching. I do teach in Queens. I'm currently teaching in an ICT classroom. Um, we have 26 in the classroom. Something that I love to do is I love to travel. I love to swim. I love to take pictures. And I'm Egyptian, so I love going back to Egypt whenever I can and whenever it's safe to do so. I got my bachelor's and my master's both from the same school. I'm certified to teach birth to second, one to six, and TESOL. So that's just a little bit about myself. Um, my name is Angela, and I teach third grade. And uh, like Marina, I also teach in Queens. So we have kind of a similar background. This is my second year of teaching. And like you, uh, I was scared of the testing grade. They put a lot of pressure on us, but for sure, I love third grade. And for me, I found that it's the perfect age. I'm certified in childhood one through six, as well as special education, actually in two states, New York and New Jersey. I did my undergrad specifically in special education, as well as psychology, and uh, teaching has always been a passion of mine. Also, Erin, you probably remember from my final project last semester, I'm of Greek heritage, and I speak the language, and I also work at a Greek private school. So it's really a big part of who I am, and like Marina, I like to travel. Uh, I like to travel back there every summer. It's my favorite thing in the world. Wow, thank you. Egypt and Greece are both countries that are high on my list to want to visit sometime in the near future. So that's great. Maybe we can take a class trip. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. Uh, We'll have to figure out a way to do that. And an online class would be a little bit tricky for that. Oh, we could do like a virtual uh, trip. Yeah, well, that's less fun. But yeah, Um, (laughs) somewhat funnily enough, Angela, you you talked about the previous class we had. I, I mentioned to you Assassin's Creed. Um, mm-hmm, yes. Odyssey, which is set in Greece, and the one before that I played was is Origins, set in Egypt. So I got to visit those virtually as well. In that sense, oh, that's so fun! Very cool. <laughs> as I said earlier, the readings were focused on uh, many of them were focused on learning styles. So actually, before I start, why do you think I set up the first two weeks uh, with the first one being preconceptions and misconceptions the way I did? Well, I feel like you probably set up this class to have preconceptions and misconceptions as the first two topics, because in any level of education, I feel like it's important to address preconceptions and misconceptions before jumping into any topic. I feel like a lot of professors in education like to model the lessons in their class as they hope that we will structure our own lessons in our own classrooms. Yeah, I agree. I think that before really going into depth into specific topics like the brain and everything else that you had planned, it's important to just kind of understand a little bit about the foundation, a little bit about um, background information and um, like different ways, I guess, quote unquote, learning before actually going into depth in other topics. Yeah, that's right. I For this week, I was trying to be a little bit meta because last week, one of the readings was talking about getting the students' prior knowledge. So this week, we're not just talking about misconceptions, but also seeing what it's like to when you have to confront your own potential misconceptions as it relates to learning styles. So I gave the class a poll last week on learning styles, and I was wondering, what did you think about the results? 
I wasn't really surprised to see that most people on the poll put that they were a visual learner. I feel like that's just how a lot of people would describe themselves. And it's true, you can't teach a kid without speaking out loud, without having some sort of visual in the background, without having some manipulatives. So it's, it's true that you know some people classify themselves as one of those three. And I also wasn't surprised that a lot of people put that they are comfortable tackling their own misconceptions just from the fact that a lot of us are uh, were education majors or teachers, and we have to deal with facts, and you never want to pass on outdated or false information. Yeah, Angela, I agree with you. I think that um, I also saw that the majority classified themselves as visual learners, which I guess I, I might have been one of the first ones to do it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm totally a visual learner. And I clicked and I was like, I got this. Like, this is this is easy. And then I also, when I saw the polls, I was like, oh man. And then I started doing the readings and I was like, oh boy, definitely. I think that everyone thinks that they are, or they classify themselves as a certain learning style and have a certain learning style. But speaking off of what you said about manipulatives, I feel like that's something that we do for all learners regardless. Not everybody needs it, but I definitely think that as teachers that we always have that in our back pocket um, waiting in case we ever need to take that out. Yes, yes, I completely agree. I always, always have some ready. I used to believe in learning styles as well, and if someone asked me what kind of learner I was, I'd say visual learner too. That seems to be the most common response, not just from the poll, but from other classes. And it made me wonder whether it's because our society is more visual, not just emerging technologies like social media, but even things like textbooks and newspapers. I guess sometimes it depends on what it is. Like for me, there was one time where I got a flat tire, and my dad had told me before how to change a tire, but oh no, like don't put me in front of a tire and expect me to be able to change it. And then luckily he was able to come and I saw what he was doing and I was like, oh, now it makes sense to me. But he told me beforehand, couldn't get it. He showed me I was able. And I guess it just maybe depends on what it is that I find myself also leaning towards just seeing to learn. But that's maybe just how I'm comfortable. I would agree because I think that anybody would prefer to watch the tire being changed as opposed to, you know, reading about it on a pamphlet. I think a kid would prefer to watch a video over looking at a textbook. You know, I think that that's just that plays into like preference. Speaking of that, just like with social studies, especially, you know, we'll read articles, we'll chunk the articles, all of that. But then when we watch this show, like on YouTube, it's called Liberty Kids. It's also part of our curriculum. Um, when we show it to the kids, they start making connections. They're like, oh, my goodness, this is what we just read about, you know, like the Boston massacre or Boston Tea Party or whatever it is that we're reading. And they start making that connection um, as they're watching the video. So I feel like both. Again, it's like visual, but it's also auditory. But again, we're going to see that's totally debunked. Mm hmm. Yeah, so let's get into the readings. So starting with the one called Advice about the use of learning styles and then the TED Talk by Marcia called The Learning Styles and the Importance of Critical Self-Reflection. What did you think of those two? For the article, I always thought, again, like that I was just a visual learner. But when I was reading it, it was I became speechless because then it was talking about how, nope, this is not the case. And it's crazy because in undergrad, in grad, um, other teachers, principals, all of these people think that children learn a certain way and that not just children, but also adults learn in a certain way. And when the article and both the video spoke about that this isn't the case, that we're just, we may be comfortable, I guess, like in a certain learning style, but that's, there's no evidence to prove to you or to anybody with all of the research that's been done. I think they said there were over like 90 uh, experiments or research or anything out there, and it just wasn't the case. There's no such thing as uh, the learning styles. So 
I definitely think that that was uh, eye-opening and kind of scary because principals and other teachers and parents always classify students in a certain learning style and they expect us to do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I remember learning it myself somewhere before this, before the video. Um, I don't remember if it was last semester or undergrad that there actually really is no learning style uh, and that no one specific person has just kinesthetic, auditory, visual. And, you know, what the readings and what the video kind of summarized for me is that these should all play a part in our learning. Uh, and I guess before all of this, I would have maybe labeled myself as the kinesthetic learner because I don't feel like I've actually learned something until I've physically done it myself. I love having visuals too, of course. I think it's very difficult to know what someone is talking about without seeing it. Overall, I, I always kind of believe that as learners, you benefit most from a combination of all three. And I think as long as you're not like sensory overloading the kids with like aids and, and visuals and all of that, they're all useful in, in lessons. And I think also just the article had also pointed out like an interesting point was yes, of course, including all three uh, ways for all, for everybody in the classroom. But I also, it's the way like that we teach as well. So kind of changing up our teaching styles. And as I said earlier that I do teach in an ICT classroom and as much as that's difficult all in all, teaching an ICT classroom is also kind of beneficial because my co-teacher is a little bit more upbeat. Um, she'll be singing and dancing. You know, she's like a performing arts major. So she'll be able to kind of reach those students that might look at me and be like what in the world are you doing because I'm more of like all right let's get this going and I'll try to you know be entertaining during the process but I you will never see me singing and dancing because I'm just not comfortable doing that and I also have two left feet when I dance so I will never do that as I'm teaching but they're able and I guess that's one of the good things about an ICT classroom is because they'll see two teachers like we'll be teaching the same thing but the way that I do it might be different than the way she does it. And they'll, some of them might like the way I do it more. Some might be able, quote unquote, to learn from the way she does it more. And so that's one of the benefits that I see from this ICT classroom, that two different teaching styles um, will be able to hopefully reach all students. Uh, and I just wanted to say, I think you're very lucky that you have another teacher in the classroom. I mean, I feel like I would be able to do so much more if I had a second person. In in my classroom, you know, I'm I'm limited being the only person in my room. But what I do is I basically use a bunch of different media to try to spice up my lessons. Uh, I've never created a lesson in the past saying, oh, these are my visual learners, so I'm going to have them watch a demonstration of how it's done. These are my auditory learners, so I'm going to differentiate by have them listen to a lecture. Again, I just have always taught with everybody deserves a taste of every form of learning. And I think that students just get bored when they are constantly learning in the same way. So you having two teachers in the classroom, two different personalities, I think that is a good way of inspiring motivation, you know, two different learning styles combined. And I, I think that's just great. Just in case, because I know we have some international students, what is ICT and what does it stand for? Oh, yeah. Uh, so ICT is like an integrated uh, classroom. It means that there's 60% of your class to be general education students and then 40% of your class to be special um, education students or as we call them um, SWD, so students with disabilities. And it has two teachers in the classroom. There's the gen ed teacher, which happens to be me, and then the special education teacher, which happens to be my co-teacher. And there are six different ways of um, co-teaching styles. Um, so the way that, and I, I did speak about it previously in one of the, um, one of the questions that you had um, posted um, on the modals, but 
the way that we do it is I'll teach math, science, and then social emotional learning. And she wanted to teach reading, writing, and social studies. And then of course we'll post small group for, you know, whichever, you know, set of students need that help. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. The Dembo and Howard Reading had mentioned something called forced choice questionnaires in, with regards to learning styles. Do you know what that means? Yeah, so forced uh, choice, the questionnaires are really what um, their assessments or questionnaires that they give to people. And they kind of have one answer that you're going to be comfortable leaning towards. Everyone's going to lean towards that. So they gave um, a really good example about um, if someone was questioned whether they prefer to watch a science demonstration or kind of just sit and watch a non-interrupted lecture. Most people, if not everybody, voted or chose to watch the science demonstration versus listening to the lecture. So it kind of just leads people to say that they're visual learners, even though they're really not. They might not be visual learners. I know you, you sent us an example of like a papered forced choice questionnaire. And as I was reading it, you know, it seemed kind of biased. It was like a, a multiple choice questionnaire. It didn't have like the neutral option or like a blank option or anything. It had like three choices that you had to pick from. And each of those three choices would like match you up with whether you were a kinesthetic learner, visual or auditory. And therefore, you kind of force the participant to categorize themselves as one of the survey option outcomes, even if their ideal answer choice wasn't listed. Yeah, you're talking about the sample learning style inventory. Yes. There are a lot of different learning style inventories. The visual auditory one seems to be most familiar, but as the video and reading said, there's a whole industry out there that produced the stuff. So the Dumble and Howard reading said that the problem with these inventories is that they use forced choice questions. And sometimes there are legitimate reasons to use forced choice questions, such as if you're screening participants for a particular demographic and you need to put them in specific categories in order to ensure that you have the right distribution. So you might omit the prefer not to answer as a choice. Otherwise, forced choice questionnaires can produce very misleading data. One other, perhaps the most uh, absurd example, are like the BuzzFeed quest quizzes. I don't know uh, if you've ever taken one. Yes, yes. Um, like what Game of Thrones characters you are. Um, I took the Disney princess one last night. <laughs> what did science. you get? <laughs> I... I'm not allowed to say, but basically <laughs> um, for uh, for reasons, basically they will ask you a question, then they give you a, a list of nine things. And most of the time I didn't fit any of the nine that they offered. I, there was no choice where I could say none of these. So I don't know how it ended up being Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> oh, oops, I knew sorry. it. I knew Off the it. record, yeah. <laughs> anyway. I think um, if I may, just kind of like going back um, to what you said earlier, Aaron, about why do we always kind of go through the process of saying, oh, like we're visual learners? And I guess it's because if we ever taken quizzes like these or tests like these, I guess it's what we felt most comfortable with. Like, are we that visual learner? Do we fall under that? Do we feel like we learn best when we see something being done or when we see something? Are we auditory? Do we learn best when we're listening to something? Or that's just how we like kind of are comfortable with learning like do we prefer seeing it or hearing it or touching it or whatever the case may be I think it's more of comfort than really um, anything else and just kind of piggyback off what you had asked a little bit earlier let's go into the video a bit more what did you think about the video I think that um she summed it up really well uh going hand in hand with the article I think that she supports everything that they had said, that this doesn't exist. And she showed us different examples of like the songbird. She said, if I wanted you to learn what the songbird 
um, look like, then I'll show you. If I wanted you to know what they sound like, then I'll have you hear it. It doesn't mean that you're that auditory or visual learner. Um, she had also brought up something about um, the chest, which I know that we might be discussing a little bit later because it went hand in hand with the article that we had read for last week. Um, but I think that I need a little bit more clarity on that. I think between seeing it, she for me at least, she spoke a little bit too fast on the point she was trying to get across. And also seeing in the article, I was able to make that connection, but I just need a little bit more clarity on that. Well, let me let me let me add to this. So my my understanding of the chess was that you know she used the chessboard example because better chess players were better able to memorize the board better, like not because they were visual learners, like that's the point she was trying to say, but because like they recognize from like prior knowledge, like they recognize like strategic moves and like setups for the game board. So a, a winning setup for the game board, they will have played that probably, you know, dozens of times over and they'll remember it. So like when they see that there, they'll memorize like the game board. But when they randomized all the pieces, then, you know, that they had no advantage over somebody that had never seen a chessboard before because it wasn't like a strategy. So I don't know. Yeah, if that's yeah, what no, you no. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. On. No, that makes yeah. sense now. Yeah. I'm glad you saw the connection between the video and the studies cited in the Donovan and Bransford reading from last week, the 1973 Chase and Simon study on page nine. And Angela, your explanation is right on point. Just to add to it, I know some of your peers have math and music backgrounds. If I showed someone with a math background a page of a mathematical proof filled with math stuff, he or she will be able to memorize it better than someone who doesn't have that background. But if I show the math person a page of just random math stuff, then the math person won't be any better than the non-math person at memorizing it. Likewise, I can show someone who can read music a score of an actual musical composition, and that person will be able to memorize it, whereas if I showed just a score of random incoherent notes, then it will be just as hard for the music person to memorize it as it would be for someone who can't read music. So the difference is that the math or music person has a conceptual framework to organize the information. It's not about memorizing it visually or being a visual learner. And what we want to do is to get students to have that conceptual framework, but not be caught up on this visual or auditory, or auditory learner thing. Mm -hmm. So has your view on learning style changed after the readings and the video? Oh, absolutely. Um, I found myself during the video uh, trying to look at the picture she had set, like uh, put a bunch of words and then pictures. And I went to the pictures trying to memorize all of them because, you know, quote unquote, I'm this visual learner. And then she got rid of it. And I'm like, I remember dog, if that even. So I didn't definitely didn't remember anything that was on it. And that was just trying to prove um, her case. So for me, I guess I'm no longer this uh, quote unquote visual learner. I might feel more comfortable when I see something being done, but that doesn't mean that I'm I'm um, a visual learner. Yeah, no, me, myself, I was never one to classify myself as anything specific. I had a preference of like doing something physical as opposed to listening to it or seeing it. So therefore, I, I guess I lean towards kinesthetic because I would obviously always pick nine out of 10 doing an experiment rather than reading about one, going on a field trip as opposed to like reading about it. I do think that what the video opened my eyes a lot to is the way that it could be damaging uh, to continue believing in learning styles. Uh, we shouldn't waste time, money, and resources on outdated research. And I think like this was kind of my aha moment that clearly like there's no evidence to support learning styles and teachers already have enough on their plate as it is. We have to differentiate instruction for over 20 kids. It would be such a waste of energy for teachers to keep track of individual learning styles on top of that. 
And in addition to this, you know, labels are dangerous and having a student believe he or she is stuck in a particular style of learning could definitely limit that student's motivation to learn in a different way. So, you know, while I was never uh, a strong advocate for learning styles, I really had no idea how damaging just believing in them could be. Well, that made me question and kind of think, because I was agreeing with you, like it's such a waste of time, but how do we really convince other people or teachers or admin or anybody, um, admin meaning administration, like your principals or assistant principals, mm-hmm. how do you convince them that learning styles is not a thing? Uh, well, for one, you should send them the link to this YouTube video. Oh, I should. this woman is very <laughs> persuasive. That's true. <laughs> there are people who I showed the video to and they're still not convinced. So my thinking would be this. I think someone who believes in learning styles, whether they have a very strong belief and believe it in the literal sense or that they believe more flexible kind of thing. First of all, these people have their heart at the right places, right? They're, they're, obviously, they care about the students. They're interested in what the students are. And they bought into this thing about learning styles because most likely they were told that learning styles exist by their teachers and their professors and suddenly the industry that's around it. And maybe even the school they're teaching in, as you said, the administrator maybe might believe in it. So it's good that they have the empathy to understand that. And it's not so so much that learning styles are completely wrong and that there's completely no such a thing because even the video says we do have preferences, right? And it's not such a big shift from saying that a student is a visual learner or an auditory learner to just kind of thinking about them with more flexibility and focus more on the content. So what are you trying to teach and what are the ways you can convey it? And in a few weeks, we'll be talking about universal design, where it's about representing information in different ways, including more visual ways or auditory ways. That principle is more for kind of assistive. So for example, maybe you have an English language learner, and sometimes when you have text that could be read out to them, that would be better for them, right? So it's slightly different. It sounds almost like learning styles, but it's different because it's more about accessibility. So I feel like, as Angela suggested, show them the video, show them the research, or just say, you know, maybe you can take a look at the research out there, and there's endless research that basically debunks this myth, right, this misconception. And, you know, maybe they'll change their mind, and maybe they won't. But I feel like it's not one of those misconceptions where you you did this thing, and now you're supposed to do the polar opposite of it. Right, right. You're, you know, you're just adjusting a little bit. And in some ways, you're making your life a little bit easier, because you're not boxing yourself into the way you teach in in a specific way, but also believing in the idea that students are able to have more flexibility. I think the key thing would just to make sure you don't reinforce this in the student so that the student himself or herself shuts down and believes that they're a visual learner and anything, any other way of conveying information, they just don't want to hear it. They don't want to learn it, right? Mm -hmm. That would be the real danger, I think. I think it's more detrimental if the students and the parents believe such. Like if the parents say, oh, you know, my child is an auditory learner, you know, like, what are you doing to help my child? And then you have to try to explain to them that this right. isn't really... That's kind of, that sounds like it would be a very awkward conversation. Yeah. Oh, well, actually, there's no such thing as auditory learners. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so oh, I can only imagine. I wanted to ask, uh, just to build off of this, while, while teaching through um, learning styles is... You know, we talked about that it's a waste of a teacher's time, money, research. Um, Do you think that when it comes to the actual student, does it does it hurt them to teach them specifically in a visual kinesthetic auditory way? Does it have no impact on them or could it even benefit them because of maybe the extra attention? Like what's the impact on the student here? 
Um, I was saying that I think going back to that science demonstration, like if well, first of all, what's what's the point of the lesson? Like, are you trying to show them something um, so that they can learn, you know, like how to do it or what it looks like? Because again, with the science demonstration, if you go off and you actually show them the demonstration, they'll probably learn it and they'll be able to go home and tell their parents what they learned versus if they read it or listen to someone lecturing. If the child doesn't know um, or they don't classify themselves or their parents don't classify them or their teachers don't classify them in a certain way, I don't think the child will really ever know. And it's just what they're more comfortable with, like that they prefer seeing it versus hearing it or doing it instead of hearing it or whatever the case may be. Right. It's dangerous to label them, definitely. Absolutely, yeah. I agree. As I said, it, it would be up to the content. And, and there are actually a lot of design principles that are actually ex- supported by empirical research that guide you in how to present information in visual or auditory ways. So for example, um, and Angela, you took the digital literacies class where we talked about Richard Maher's uh, multimedia principle, mm-hmm. right? That's empirical research that talks about how and when you use an image versus text and auditory. That research is based on cognitive load. And I don't want to get too much into it because it's kind of off topic, although it's super important and I encourage you to look into it. But basically the idea is that there's a limit to how much attention we can pay to the audio channel and the visual channel. And so it's easier for the most part for people to read a book and listen to, let's say, classical music, right? Mm-hmm. So that doesn't overload because those that information is coming from two different channels, but they're not kind of contradicting each other. But that's why texting and driving is, is dangerous because that creates cognitive load. And likewise, if you are creating a, an educational video or a presentation, when you have visuals and then you have text and then you're also reading, that also creates cognitive overload. And that would be bad for all learners, never mind what preference they have. That type of research would be useful because it's actually empirically supported by research and, and replicated and all that stuff. Right. And I think that was a big point of um, the misconceptions entire chapter is just basing what we're teaching the kids off of evidence and time-tested theories. I also think it's a nice kind of segue into do learners really know best in talking about those myths? I think you kind of just hit it right on the head. Yeah, perfect. Because uh, that that's our next topic. Too. This is so. Before we move past this, I also I wanted to remind the students uh, in the class that, or, or to let you know that in the Wiggins and Matig reading, and you read a lot up from their um, book on instructional design, they actually mention learning styles, and they don't talk about it, but they kind of mention it. They would say, you know, make sure your lessons are accommodate to their backgrounds, uh, values, and learning styles. They just mention it in passing, which I found really annoying because it was like, oh, no, you you can't. I respect you guys so much. And how could you mention that? So I wanted to mention that because if it, when, when you come across it, I don't know what they actually believe in it, whether they just wanted to include it. But they maybe they don't necessarily know. Certainly, as the reading and the video had mentioned, a lot of educators themselves don't know enough about learning styles and believe it exists. So anyway, I just want to mention that before you get to it. Mm-hmm. Do learners really know best? When, what did you think of this reading? They uh, focus really on three different myths. And I know that the first one um, being that do learners really know Best. It really was talking about them and how the generation that we have now, and I guess including ourselves too, that we can quote unquote multitask. But then they realize that this isn't the case. So, you know, if a child is doing their homework while texting or, you know, doing their homework and playing any game that they can be playing out there, 
they're not really multitasking. They're, they can quickly and flawlessly just go from one task to another, but they can never do both of them at the same time. So that kind of reminds me um, of myself because I have a tendency of just being on, um, on the phone, Bluetooth, of course, and driving. So I drive to work and back every day, same path, same road. So I feel like I can pretty much do it in my sleep. But then when you add something new to the plate, or to the road, like someone uh, that just kind of was jaywalking or someone like a dog running across or a squirrel or anything like that. I can't fully continue talking. I'd have to either stop talking completely or just tell the person, hold on, and then do what it is that I was doing. Even with parking, I find myself like lowering the volume or lowering the music to park. And it's just crazy because I guess I can do both, but then I feel that I need to concentrate on parking or driving or whatever it is that's on the road. And then there was another story where my friend was recently telling me, it was this about a month ago. Uh, She's in the medical field and she works at a hospital in the pharmacy department. And she went into work a little bit early and one of her coworkers was kind of like putting, you know, making the IV bags and putting labels on them. So my friend went in early and she told her, I guess she simply just said hello or anything like that. And the girl offered for her to help. My friend offered to help. And as the girl was giving her the labels, she accidentally gave her the wrong labels. So it was between her creating the labels in the IV bags and quote unquote multitasking to talk to my friend, but ended up making this big mistake because my friend who was given the wrong labels labeled the wrong IV bags with the wrong IV, like whatever was inside. They were giving it to the nurses and the doctors and then someone caught the mistake before it actually went out to a patient. I mean, it was a whole big investigation, but you can't multitask, like you cannot talk and also, you know, do the IV bag. You can't really talk and then drive on the road, especially if something kind of comes in your way. And it reminds me of our students where we expect them to do so much at once, including, wait a minute, I want you to copy your notes, but I also want you to listen to what I'm saying and what I'm teaching you, because that just, there's no way that the kids are going to be able to do that if we as adults can't even. Right. Um, You know, I I thought that the reading pretty much summed up the misconceptions about learning perfectly. I thought your example was a great example about how, you know, if if adults can't even multitask, I don't know how we can expect students to multitask. And the second part of that myth also made a great argument against the, um, the young generation of digital natives, as the reading calls them, and that they're automatically being blessed with all these technical skills. And, you know, just because I know my students were basically born with an iPad in their hands, it doesn't it doesn't mean that they know how to navigate all the information they have access to. You know, could you imagine if I was going to teach a lesson on like homophones, for example, and I just asked the kids to Google homophones and gave them an assessment on it afterwards? You know, a lot of these myths that we we read about in this reading, um, interesting to see how they were debunked. As I was reading the article, I was wondering if the learner doesn't know best, but obviously the learner does have some sense of how they learn how do you find the balance between respecting how learners feel they learn best versus time-honored, proven pedagogical methods that may clash with how learners feel? I think we kind of touched on this, but um, I do find that it's a challenging question because I've also asked that similar question. And I think that it's difficult to explain to someone on their view, like depending on their view, again, like with parents or anything like that um, or administration about how to actually change their mind on what's been proven and what's been debunked because these are all myths. They don't exist and it's not a thing of 2019 or hasn't really been a thing. But I do think that it's important to prove them wrong and show them everything out there and also just have them, you know, to be aware that their learning style doesn't really exist. 
and that just like Angela has said before like kind of incorporate all three you know not all three but to show visuals to show to have that auditory to have the kinesthetic just to reach all our students so it's more of our students and not so much of anybody else around us I guess you can say uh, yeah, I would definitely say that you need to give a person um, a little of, of everything and tell them to keep an open mind um, to what works. And uh, if they believe they're a vid visual learner and like they're aware of that uh, and they're persistent on it, then, you know, give them a video to watch on the topic. Give them something visual, but also use the time-honored time and proven pedagogical methods alongside them and hope that, you know, they reach their aha moment through a medium that they didn't think they could learn through before, you know, expand their horizons. That would be my advice on this. Yeah. And I think it also comes with our teaching styles. Like if we can just simply tweak it a little bit, then we'll be able to go ahead and like reach all of them. So in the, in the remaining time, I wanted to just dig into the three myths in a little bit more detail. I know you already talked a little bit about digital natives and multitasking. And I was wondering whether what the article said about digital natives reflects either your experience with students or with yourselves as students. So in the fourth grade, we try to do a lot of um, online work and research and incorporating Google Classroom, um, Google Slides, all of that for them to create something online. But I think one of the traps that we fall um, into is that we're like, oh, yeah, you know, they're born on the Internet. They know how to go from this website to this website. They're able to teach themselves online. But that's really not the case because you can give them a topic that they know absolutely nothing about and expect them to actually go and teach themselves. And this doesn't happen like it. They'll just click on a website that the first website they'll write, OK, like American Revolution. They'll click on the first website and that's the information they're going to give you. And they don't really know whether this is accurate information or not accurate information. So I think that we need to realize that these students need some background information before actually doing research and learning on a topic. In my own experience with, you know, being born, I guess, maybe at like the tail end or like, you know, starting end of whatever the digital native generation is, I sometimes try to work on two assignments at the same time on my computer. Uh, for example, in like in this class, I'll work on my notes for my voice thread at the same time, maybe as my aha moment. And the reason for this is that, you know, I'll constantly have an idea for one thing and want to jot it down before I forget and then switch to what I was originally working on. And I know that probably slows me down off overall because when I go back to my other notes, I have to take the time to remember where I was in the first place. And I'm not actually doing them at the same time and I'm switching my attention. And I think that also goes back to multitasking and how it, it's hard for us to multitask. I can't imagine my students, you know, themselves doing it in class. Yeah, I think um, I also um, I think I might have said it earlier, but the asking the students to kind of find the information and then writing it in their own words like they're they need to stop. They need to get the information first and then they need to go off and they need to turn it into their own words. So, you know, especially with the younger ones, you need to do like step one and then step two, because it's nearly impossible to do both at the same time. Like it's a big struggle for them. And I think it also, you know, it is for us, just like you had said with your aha moment, you know, just going between back and forth, you get a great idea, then you go off of that and then you go back, but you can never do both at the same time. No one can do both at the same time. Right. And I think this goes into, um, you know, self, self-educating. You know, we have to be cautious when self-educating ourselves and consistently fact-checking our sources um, because, you know, the reading mentions that, yes, without school, we would be able to find the same information online as we do in the classroom. 
But, you know, how do you distinguish the good information from the bad information? Um, and I think that our students, you know, we have to teach our students to be to be cautious about this as well. And how do you have any sort of prior knowledge backed up to help you build this foundation in the first place of what, what you're finding online? Yeah, they need someone to teach them how to do that because, you know, at a young age, they're definitely not able to do that. Everything's in... Everything is what the internet says. And then you start teaching them about plagiarism. And then we, you know, scare them up a little bit. We're like, guys, you know, if you're using what the internet says and you might do, this might happen to you. Like people have gone to jail. You know, we scare them up a little bit just because they need to know the consequence at a young age. I feel like that's not something that I was taught in the fourth grade or third grade. It's kind of like, okay, you know, it is what it is. I don't even remember doing research at that age. But, you know, that's something that we have to teach them that not, first of all, you can't do it. It has to be in your own words, but also don't just trust everything that you read online. Um, I had one student who would, in the middle of any lesson, he would be like, did you know? And then he would say some crazy fact. And we're like, where did you even learn this? He's like, well, I was on Wikipedia. And then we had to pull him to the side and be like, listen, buddy, you know, sometimes it's great, but other times, let me tell you how Wikipedia actually works. So he kind of, you know, stopped. I think he still goes on, but won't really share it with us. But they don't they don't know. They don't know how to filter what's a fact and what's an opinion and what's nonsense and, you know, what's actually something that they can use or for it to be useful. I have, I have a student who we call it TV talk. He constantly um, just everything he thinks he watches on TV or reads on the Internet or whatever is he, he'll remember it and then he'll regurgitate it back to us in like the most random part of a lesson. So the other day, you know, the student, you know, he came up to me. And he said, I already know all about Abraham Lincoln because we were learning about Abraham Lincoln. And he goes, I see the commercials about him all the time. And I'm like, I'm like, what? there are commercials yeah, about seen Abraham those. Lincoln. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm like, all right, what do you know about Abraham Lincoln? And he told me he could get 28 miles to the gallon. And oh, my. <laughs> That's hilarious. And I, I laughed and I asked if he even knew what a gallon was and he shook his head. <laughs> when I was rereading this article, I noticed that, and this is on page 176, they talked about the half-life of information, which obviously made me think of the Asberman reading from last week. But where Asberman was saying that Wikipedia is a good thing because information is more updated compared to printed material, the authors here are making the case that just because you can look something up on the internet doesn't mean you can educate yourself. And I think this was the part that I had more trouble with, not so much I disagree with them, but because it seems like such a blanket statement, you know, I, of course, when you're talking about young kids, yeah, that makes sense. But they're also talking about adults. So, I mean, it, it'd be sad to think that once you're out of school, you can't learn anything. And a lot of you mentioned lifelong learning, so both can be true, right? Mm-hmm. I think maybe my issue is that they're saying you can't find structure on your own. So, for example, if I'm interested in learning a new topic... I would look up another professor's syllabus or reading list or look at what an expert would recommend. And these resources are out there on the internet. So that was kind of my, the point I wanted to make. Can I can I piggyback off that? Of course. Um, I think, I guess it depends on the topic. So if you're educating yourself on perhaps, you know, you want to buy a car and you don't know, mm. you don't know nothing about cars and you're kind of just doing a research out there on, you know, miles per gallon or anything like that along you know like which one's the best which one's cost efficient which one's best for the environment which one am I going to be able to drive if I want to go um like a sports mode or whatever it might be I think that that's something you can probably teach yourself but then if you're trying to teach yourself or maybe I'm talking more about myself but if I'm trying to teach myself about something in the medical field which I also fall 
you know, I've been trapped. I hate going to the doctor. Totally hate him. I love the doc, like love him as a doctor, but I just hate going to the doctor, period. I don't like going and waiting and the whole process. I don't know. I just don't like it. So oh, for would me, would you rather look on WebMD? Exactly. Sort of thing. Yes. Exactly. Yes. But then it's Dr. Google. And then you find out that your headache and your stomach ache and your, you know, left toe hurting, whatever, um, you're, you have cancer. You know, that's what it ends up telling you. So, and you really don't. And then when I go to the doctor, the doctor's like, are you crazy? And he'll just laugh at me. But I think that, you know, something in the medical field, you can only teach yourself so much from the internet, but you need that person to tell you more. Like, you know, even like in terms of, of medicine. So my brother's a pharmacist. If I look online and I'll bring the information to him, a lot of times he'll laugh at me because it's not, it's not accurate. So I think it depends on the topic of what you're trying to teach yourself. You can't, you're not going to be a doctor from just teaching yourself things online. You need that teacher. You need that professor. You need um, the experience to be able to get to, you know, where you need to be as a doctor. I guess that's how I'm seeing it. I, I was going to say, um, you know, you reminded me of like a story of my, my sister. You know, she had a little black spot on her pinky toe and, you know, she went to the doctor and she was like, is it melanoma? Tell me it's not melanoma. Oh boy. And then she, 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 she pulled out some, uh, what is it? Nail polish remover. It was nail polish. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, you know, I, th- and I think it's, it's, it's hard for someone to have a structure when self-educating. I think just because someone can, you know, like, can, can read something off of WebMD, uh, share a tweet, read a blog post, or watch a TV commercial. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can navigate their own learning environment. I think they need some background information. I think they oh, need, definitely. yeah, they need, they need to know something. Um, like again, when I was talking about the cars, I guess you had a little bit of knowledge about, okay, I need to look at miles per gallon. I need to look at, you know, does it have that sports mode or just the eco mode? Uh, all right. of that stuff. You need a little bit of background information before you go researching something and quote unquote teaching it to yourself. I guess my issue is with how broad they make the case. So obviously, if it's something important, like something medical or legal, then no, you don't want to learn online, right? That I absolutely agree with. But I think in other cases, like if you want to learn something for yourself and you're not taking a test or you just want to better your knowledge, then I think self-education is possible. And just to tie it back to the digital native stuff, I don't know if you know of the site Reddit, but there are communities there like Ask a Historian or Ask Science that lets you ask a question about something in their field and someone, an expert, will come and give you a serious professional response. So the internet does give you access to experts. And I guess my point is that if you have limited time or if you're looking to achieve a specific outcome, then yeah, a structured class guided by an expert is the way to go. But if you're just learning out of curiosity, then I think self-education is possible. And I also just want to go back to an earlier conversation about Gironades again. I too make the mistake of expecting that students will know or find it easy to learn things like creating a website. You know, I don't even mean knowing HTML. I mean knowing how to create one through websites like Wix that provides templates. But even that's not as easy as I think. And I have to constantly remind myself of that. And that, like the article said, that even whatever they do with technology is often limited to specific things. I, but I think that that's something that, you know, if we, or maybe I'm wrong, but if you Google it or you're on YouTube, you'll be able to find how to create your own website. Like it'll walk you through the steps on how to create your own website. I don't know mm-hmm. if you really need right. to. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think, but for that though, with, with us, um, we need to have some sort of background knowledge to be able to, like, it all goes back to like baby steps, right? Mm-hmm. So 
I think that it would be much easier for us to Google how to make a website with the tools that we already have at our disposal, as opposed to like my parents who you still need to teach them what like, like the other day, my mom asked me, what's a Facebook wall? Do I have one? Can other people see it? Like there's just some sort of like terminology that I think that we have at this point in, you know, our education at this point in our lives um, and being born the time that we were born, that we, we have that sort of background knowledge to learn, to be able to Google how to make a website. No, you're right. I mean, I even have, um, I have a coworker and I, I, I love her so much, but she always, when she needs something with technology and I'm not, you know, totally tech savvy, but she's like, Marina, how do I do this? Marina, how do I do that? You know, it's even the struggle of PowerPoint. It's a struggle of, you know, Google Slides, how to post something on Google Classroom. Like that's that's her struggle, um, how to format the size of a slide, like stuff like that is the simple stuff that she like struggles with. So you're absolutely right. They need a little bit of background information and the terminology to be able to, you know, lead themselves to X, Y, Z, like create a website or anything that they're trying to do out there. A lot of the belief about digital natives, especially as it relates to younger people, comes from uh, studies on participatory culture, which I know, Angela, we talked a little bit about that in the digital literacies, I think. Mm-hmm. Participatory culture is the term that some use to describe the community, usually made up of young people, who use technology to produce and share their digital creations. There was an influential book a few years back called Hangout, Messing Around, and Geeking Out, in which these authors describe various genres of participation that young people engage in. So with Hangout, you have more friendship-driven activities where you do something because you want to hang out with your friends, you know, like playing video games together. In Messing Around, you're tinkering with new toys and more seriously engaged with the new technology. And then in Geeking Out, you're more in interest-driven social groups, where you're not defined by your age or who you are, but by what you know and what you can do. I know last semester we read about this young man who created a viral video who was that was watched by millions and, and a lot of researchers look at this type of work as a powerful form of empowerment. The problem is that a lot of these are anecdotes. They're fascinating, but they're not the norm. In a recent book called Participatory Culture in a Networked Age, which is written like a conversation between Henry Jenkins, Mizuko Ito, and Dana Boyd, who are key figures in this area, Both Ito and Boyd actually were co-authors of the Hangout book I mentioned. Dana Boyd, who's known for her ethnographic work with youth culture and technologies, argues that geeking out practices are actually really rare and most young people aren't immersed in fan cultures or producing viral videos. They're using technology for social media to share videos or photos and to play games together. But they're not doing as much production as researchers would like us believe. And so because of that, we can't expect the digital native to naturally know about technology. The article ended with some conclusions. So what did you think about the design principles that they recommended? I think that they give us uh, definitely um, some principles that are reasonable and doable um, to be effective while learning and also for us while teaching. Um, But it helps definitely guide me and help me understand what I should learn when I have questions before I actually read. So something that I do on test and something I teach my students is to always read the questions and the answers before, um, if it's like multiple choice, of course, like to read the answer choices mm-hmm. before the actual reading to just make sense of them and to know what it is that they want me to learn and what it is that they want me to kind of get out while I'm reading. So that's something that I've always um, taught my kids and something that I've always done because I thought that it was 
beneficial for me at least and i think that also um structuring and creating some kind of outline before a text uh while, before reading is something that's important for us and it'll help gear us to what it is that we need to kind of get out of the reading as we read right i i agree with what um you were mentioning before that principle that talks about uh inserting questions um, prior to or after text passages, I think that, you know, always having comprehension questions going along with reading. For me personally, that's how I know I've learned something. When I can answer the questions without even, even needing to go back in the text. Like, I read it, I understood it, I can answer these comprehension questions. And, um, you know, I do agree that the principles um, that they give at the end of this reading are completely doable. And I like the last principle that they gave on text structure the most. I think that um, it really helps a student organize their brain when they're looking at an outline of what they're learning. I think that um, that's the case whether or not you classify yourself as a visual learner. I think it's um, very discouraging when you're unorganized in your learning, when you're looking at a sheet of paper and the facts are all over the place and you don't know where to begin. Well, I think that wraps up our conversation on misconceptions. Next week, our topic is on the brain and on what we now know about learning from research in neuroscience. I want to thank you both again, Marina and Angela, for being here today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Have a great weekend. You too. You too. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.